Welcome to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Laura Turner. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight lives and breathes food and flavours and through an incredible amount of hard work and dedication to his craft has become one of Melbourne's most successful and well-recognised chefs. With a work ethic instilled in him by his hard-working Maltese family and a desire to achieve more than was ever expected of him by his high school teachers, he's now considered the maestro of Australia's Middle Eastern food scene and shares his passion for food via his various TV shows, but just don't call him a celebrity chef. It is my pleasure to welcome to Great Australian Lives, Shane Delia. How are you, Shane? Well, after an intro like that, I'm pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good wrap-up of you. Um, now, first of all, I want to know what irks you about being called a celebrity chef. Oh, I'm not a celebrity i'm just a cook i mean i'm not i'm I, I've, I've had a, i've been pretty blessed and had some chance to do some media stuff and meet some amazing people and you know i never thought that my ugly head people would want to have a look at on tv but um i, I don't consider myself a celebrity I, I i i i'm just an average guy yeah but melburnians love food so much so someone who can serve them up an incredible dish i think is a celebrity in anyone's eyes whether you're on tv or not <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then all my chefs behind the scenes should be the celebrities because they're the amazing blokes that are getting it done. I've got, I've got a great team of you know girls and guys in there that bust their chops every day to get it done. I'm, I'm just, I'm just the guy that takes the credit. <laughs> Yeah, well, fair enough. <laughs> now, you're back on our TV screens on Channel 9 and SBS, but let's start with uh, Postcards, which is, of course, on Channel 9, Victoria's favourite travel show, as they call it. Uh, but this scene is going to be a bit different, isn't it, focusing on inspiring Victorians um, to get out and support local businesses and communities. And, and I guess um, there is no better time, no better year to be doing that, especially in your industry. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've been so lucky to be on Postcards. I mean, I've been watching postcards for so long. And then I was a guest on there a couple of times as a chef. And then to get the call up and come on and and, and be asked to be a presenter was was like a dream. I mean, I love it. Um, The the best bit about it is that I actually get out to go into the marketplace and meet real Melburnians, um, real Victorians, and hear their stories and and just try to help them get a leg up. And and like you said, I mean, this year is so important to support local. But, I mean, what we've been able to do with postcards so far is that We've probably gone to a few little places that aren't the must-go-to real scenic places. I mean, we got to take the cameras and go back to my old stomping ground of St Albans out in the western suburbs, which, you know, isn't the most picturesque place, but has, has, has an amazing wealth of people. And, and the people there are so beautiful yeah. and they need support just like all the big end of town restaurants do. Absolutely. And do you find yourself still surprised or, or is it still an eye-opener to, to learn, um, you know, about new dining experiences uh, in your own backyard? Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, the best thing about Melbourne is that we're, we're resilient here, you know. Like we really, really do try to, to stand up in the face of adversity and, you know, the, 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 the strength and the belief and the passion of, of Victorians and Australians as a whole is just really inspiring. So in one in one hand, yes, I'm, I'm surprised to find new things. What really surprises me is when I find those little institutions that I didn't know anything about. 
that might have been there for yeah. you know, 20 or 30 years. Um, and it's just like, wow, how did I not know about this place? And, you know, those people, those stories – those smiles that you know that that craft is what really inspires me. Yeah, I love that. Um, those, yeah, as you say, those lo- for some people, the local is is everything. So that's so good that you could capture that. Um, in one episode of Postcards, you head to Inner West Footscray, um, and that that's a really diverse little pocket of Melbourne. Were you surprised to find that, or, or would you knew about that already? No, that's my hood. I'm, I'm a Westie, so, you know, like I'm... Um, oh, yeah, true, St Albans, yeah, not too far yeah. away. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great for me is, is like, that's the heartland. I mean, I'm a, I'm a passionate Western Bulldogs supporter and lucky enough to be the ambassador yeah, right. of the club. So, you know, when my dad came to Australia oh, wow. in 1970, um, Footscray was the, was the first place that he called home, the first place he had a job. So, um, no, I, I suppose the, the, the most exciting bit of Footscray, it shines a real lens on the multiculturalism of, of, of Victoria. Um, I think that all waves mm. of migrants sort of come and settle through Footscray. So you've got this beautiful array of, of cultures and people and, and, and a really multicolored smile everywhere you look, you know, from, from, you know, from our Vietnamese, um, you know, immigrants to, you know, Europeans and now through a heap of Africans and Indians and, Everybody was just really congregated in in Footscray and made it something special. We're so lucky in Victoria, aren't we, to have um, the amount of multicultural uh, dishes available, restaurants, that food scene. I think we take for granted a bit how lucky we are. Yeah, we definitely do take for granted, and something that we we something else we also take for granted is that you know we always hear these sort of things about racism and you know people pushing against each other but look i remember when i was at school growing up in the west and you had you know all of this conflict sort of in in bosnia and serbia and everything else and and all of that going on and then it kind of transferred here to a victoria and you'd see it but now when we filmed Mm. in saint albans and we went to you know like a bosnian coffee shop and you've got croatians on one side bosnians on the other and they're all drinking coffee together and celebrating what yeah. it is to be living a free life here in Australia, that's what's really inspiring. It's you know, it's, it's, you don't see that anywhere yeah, else. That, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. You're right. Um, what, what are some of your favourite food regions? Aside from your, your love of the West, is, what are some of your favourite food regions in Victoria? I'm sure there's a few. Uh, yeah, um, look, I, I am a fan of getting in the car and going with the kids down for sort of Box Hill for dumplings. <laughs> I, I don't think they've got some amazing <laughs> sort of uh, – you know, like there's great – I'm a dumpling fiend, right? Like, I mean, so I, I, love, yeah. I love it. But to, but to be honest, I mean, um, I, I, I like a few things. You know, I love my family. I love my sports. And, I'm, and I've always loved my cars. And I've got a couple of cars that I love. And I love – jamming the kids into one of the cars on the weekend and driving out to Dalesford and, you know, sitting out there at the oh, lake yeah. house on the deck and going for a walk down Hepburn Springs and taking the dog and let them go for a run. I mean, I, I, you know, I love simple stuff. So a bit of scenery, a bit of air, um, good food and, 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 you know, sort of really wholesome times is, is what I'm about. What kind of cars, Shane? Ah, oh, nothing too special. I'm a, I'm a Westie, you know, so I've got Monaros and Brock Commodores and stuff like that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. That's awesome. Yeah, but but I've but but got one pride of joy, which I remember when I was um, 21, there was a car, there was a Mercedes uh, that was released, an SL55, which I, I, the, G, the general manager of the hotel I was working in bought one. And I, I just turned 21. I just finished my apprenticeship. They were like $380,000 back in 2001. And I've just looked at this thing and said, one day when I make it, I'm going to buy that car. And um, when I turned yeah. 40, 
Oh, geez, a year ago now, I bought that car. Believe me, it wasn't three hundred eighty thousand dollars anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and is it uh, preciously locked up in the garage along with the others? Yeah, I mean, it lives in the bedroom, and I sleep outside. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know what your wife thinks about that. <laughs> she doesn't understand me. Um, now, filming in Victoria with, you know, a full crew is a far cry from some of the places you travelled to and, and conditions you worked in while you were filming uh, Spice Journey for SBS, which was a bit of a cult um, cult show. Um, that show you took to Iran, Morocco, Lebanon or the foothills of Lebanon um, and you filmed in conflict zones in Syria, um, even pooped on by a donkey. <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> re- are really different. I mean, you're not getting that in Victoria, are you? <laughs> well, not down Ligon Street. <laughs> Were you, uh, did the experience of Spice Journey change you as a chef though? I mean, that, they're some pretty unique experiences for, for, a, for, a, for a boy from Melbourne's West. Uh, it, it, cha- it did more than change me as a chef. I mean, it changed me as a, as a person. It changed me as a man. It changed me a, as a father and as a husband. I mean, I, I left – I feel I left to go on my first spice journey, you know, um, travel as a really hungry, uh, passionate chef, and I felt like I came back as a well-rounded man. Um, I got to see people yeah. who go through so much trouble – so much, so many challenges, but have such a deep-seated love and passion for their heritage, for their culture, for their food culture, for their family, their history. In this, in spite of all the hardship that they face, and it really made me shift my mm. perspective and, and and really appreciate um, the opportunities and and the freedom and liberty that we have here in Australia. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and you, you're you're a pretty busy man at the moment, juggling postcards, uh, but also uh, a Middle East feast on SBS. Um, that this is you're you're a lucky guy, given how hard hit your industry has been uh, in the pandemic. Um, you must consider yourself pretty lucky to be so busy at the moment. Uh, I've I've always been really blessed. I mean, I've got I've got a great group of people around me. That, that, that helped me and, and enabled me to, to, to really dream big. Um, Postcards has been a blessing. Middle East Feast, I never thought that I'd get another chance to do another TV show. This is, that's my third show with, with SBS. I mean, we did Recipe for Life, Spice Journey, and now Middle East Feast. Um, I'm looking forward to that hitting, hitting the air. I mean, it comes, I think it's on air mid-June or July, so that's going to be something fun. But... Um, no, look, I, I have been really lucky. The, the industry has been really hard, really heavily hit. Um, my restaurants have been decimated. Um, we've tried to hold on to as many staff as we can. We've we've supported, you know, migrant visa workers that, that haven't been looked after by the government. We've kept them fully employed. Um, I'll always go and fight for my people because they're always fighting for me. For people listening, and myself included, uh, who, who would want to try cooking Middle Eastern food, I'm a bit intimidated. Where, where, would, where do you start? Uh, you know, it's it's really easy. I mean, it's not. It's it's just you just have to try some new things, right? Like it's it's not actually this whole another cuisine that it t- takes a million different ingredients, and you need to learn suddenly how to make dumplings and put them in a steamer. Um, like I think Asian food's probably harder to cook. Um, Middle Eastern food's homely. It's wholesome. Um, it's it's yeah. a balance of sweet yeah. and savory. Um, people say spicy, and I kind of get my back up a bit because most people when they say spicy they're talking about heat i think it's you know middle eastern foods about fragrance it's about it's about pronounced flavors um you, you, i think you'd start 
with something as simple as the world famous hummus. You know, like I mean, it's there's nothing mm-hmm. more simple yep, yep. Than, than a dish of you know chickpeas, garlic, a bit of lemon. Um, that's just world renowned and and so bloody good for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, now I'm hungry. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And in these challenging times, Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. In a moment, we're going to head back into Chef Shane Delia's childhood to the western suburbs of Melbourne and find out just how he went from being the bad kid at school to the maestro of Middle Eastern cuisine in Melbourne. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight is Chef Shane Delia owner of renowned eateries Maha and Biggie Smalls, and he's back on our TV screens on Postcards on Channel 9 and on A Middle Eastern Feast on SBS. He is a busy man. Speaking of being a busy man, Shane, I want to talk about your early life. We, we said uh, at the end of the last segment that you were the bad kid at school. You're a boy from Melbourne's western suburbs. <laughs> where, does that, where does that anecdote come from that you were the bad kid from school? Uh, look, I, I don't. I don't think I'm a bad person. I never thought I was a bad kid, but I was always in trouble. Um, and I think that that trouble yeah. came from. I mean, I, mean, I was a naughty kid. I've, I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've got ADHD. I mean, I've had that my whole life. I mean, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't something that was diagnosed. I mean, it wasn't a thing. Mm. Um, so when you're battling with labeled, something like yeah. that, and and I'm and I'm not the guy that sits there and bang on about mental health because I think mental health's obviously real, and and I've had my own challenges. And, but I think a lot of people use it as a cop-out for just not really not being able to face yeah. up to the wrong in their life and use it as a bit of an uh, as a scapegoat. And to be honest, that's that's really sort of like uh, belittling for people who do kind of struggle, right? If you've, if you've done wrong in your life, you own it and you move on. You don't just blame something else and look for, for an excuse. But um, I, I, I found it really hard to focus in school. I found it really hard to connect. My self-esteem was extremely low um, and that causes – you to rebel, right, and push out. So yeah, yeah. I was the, yeah. I was always known as the bad kid. I was the, the the cousin out of 36 cousins on my dad's side of the family who was always in trouble. I was the guy that was getting suspended from school, the kid that was getting kicked out of class, the guy that would be wagging school in the afternoon just because he just didn't want to be at school because it didn't well, wasn't understood. So um, it wasn't that I wanted yeah. to cause trouble or punch up kids or do anything stupid like that. It's just that I was finding it really hard to yeah, settle in. Frustrated. Yeah. That's fair enough. And and you mentioned all your cousins. You um, you had a huge family. Uh, and uh, take us back to those early memories of Sunday lunch with your mum's family, um, <laughs> and dinner with your grandfather and dad's family. Fifty or sixty people uh, for dinner. That's most yeah. more than most of us will probably double what most of us would have on Christmas Day. <laughs> I mean, that that they're, they're that's they're insane uh, memories. Yeah, I mean, you can you know it's something that's funny. I mean, I, when I was up until the time I hit secondary school, I thought everybody in Australia was Maltese because uh, just we grew up <laughs> in, a, in a big family. My dad had you know eight sisters, and they've all got three or four kids each, and then they've got husbands, and then there's you know second cousins, and we grew up in this really tight knit community where we had everything we needed, and every, and we, and everything was sustained and available within our family unit. Um, and it was really beautiful, right? Like, I mean, it was really beautiful. We had a, 
My grandfather was an amazing man. My grandmother was beautiful, strong women in our family, um, some really good good role models, and, and grew up in this beautiful extended family of 30-odd cousins, but then another 100 second cousins, all within like a couple of blocks. Wow. So, um, yeah, so it was, yeah. it was really fun. Um, it was really supportive, um, and it really gave me a great sense of community. And, and, and I suppose it gave me the, 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 the sense of, of, of that I'm a part of something bigger and I need to pull the line. Yeah. And being one of the eldest, it was like we were the first generation of the dream of being realized, you know, coming to Australia um, wow. you know, with the idea of one day having a family. We were those, we were those offspring of that dream. So it's our job now to mm. realize that opportunity and, and, and not, not let the sacrifices of our, you know, grandparents and parents be uh, put to waste. Yeah, and and you're so lucky to have that sense of belonging, and as you say, feeling like something bigger. Because a lot of people don't have that. So, yeah, that's that's wonderful grounding, especially given that, that your parents were new to the country. Your dad came when he was 17 from Malta with just a couple of dollars and worked at the Dunlop factory. Um, was he? Was he? Did he? Did he instill the work ethic in you, Shane? Can I tell you, you guys are great with your with your research. Um, yes, my, um, dad, dad turned 18 on the boat um, on the way over and he came by himself. He was sent out here to, to, to find a new land and then, you know, sent back money to bring back the rest of the family over. I mean, it's not a unique story. That happened a lot. Um, but, yeah, look, my dad is the one of the most selfless, respectful and honourable people I know. He worked two or three jobs when we were kids. His only time off was on the weekend and it was spent with the family, take us to the footy, you know, do some bits and pieces like that. He really wanted to be Australian. Like my dad got off the boat and decided that he's now Australian. He was going to really assimilate, oh, wow. um, didn't speak Maltese at home, um, called his son Shane, his, his other son Dean, his da- daughter Sarah, wanted to be Australian. <laughs> and, 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 and that's something that yeah. stuck with us. And he felt that was his, it was his duty to, 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 to contribute to, to what Australia could be. He's been given a chance and now he had to make it work. Yeah. And, and we've probably taken that work ethic from okay. dad that, you know, you only get opportunities in life. You don't get anything given to you. So when you get an opportunity, you have to make the most yeah. of it. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great um, way to, to think about it and, and way to learn. When did mum, Doris, come into the picture? Well, mum was born here. Um, she was born here from migrant parents. My, both my, my, none, none of my mum's parents came from Malta, met here in Australia, married here and had my mum. And um, I think mum came into the picture. Dad would have been 18. I think mum, they would have got married in their early 20s. So I think dad came yeah. and he was, you know, as, as, as he did back in those days, you stuck around your own sort of people and um, found mum in the yeah. Maltese community. And, you know, she's pretty good looking. My mum, so I get my good looks from. So I think he was smitten. <laughs> <laughs> And you, you um, you've openly said you wouldn't be where you are today without your mum. What sort of influence did she have on you? We know dad, dad had the great work ethic. Where did mum come into it for your career? Uh, mum's a grinder too. Mum, mum, mum works her butt off. You know, I, I remember there was a tag team sort of thing happening in the early days where sort of dad would work all day, mum would work all day at home doing you know childcare and bits and pieces, and then dad would come home. They would tap gloves. Mum would leave and go work night shift. So, I mean, mum, mum's wow. a no, no pushover and plus she would manage all the money for the house. I remember back in the days, dad used to get paid cash, right? So you'd come home and put the envelope of cash down once a week. Mum would count out a few bucks, give him some back and then she'd manage the rest of the money. So um, I've got the utmost respect for mum. She's, she's family first always. 
Um, she's got the biggest heart in the world. Um, I remember even when I was getting, you know, my mind was being ripped apart by why I can't concentrate, why I can't focus, why can't I fit in, why is this all going wrong? Mum was the person that didn't just push me inside and say that I was, a, you know, a bad kid. You know, she actually just stood beside me and tried to understand and fought with me every day to, you know, to, to help get where I am now. So, yeah, she's the most forgiving yeah. person I know and I probably don't tell her enough. Um, that I love her, but she's, she's she's unbelievable. Oh, I hope she's listening. That's beautiful. And and just on on that, Shane, when you when you talk about um, not being able to concentrate and um, how you have ADD, when did you get the diagnosis, and 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 how did that change things for you? Oh, look, it was right at the like eleventh hour. You know, like I left school uh, when I was sixteen, so like I left sort of year eleven, um, and it wasn't until sort of when I was like. 15 and a half that I got diagnosed and it was just it was it was it was it was mixed feelings it was traumatic to think that why didn't this happen earlier because as soon as yeah. I was diagnosed and medicated and counseled I went from being a C and D student to an A and a B student like overnight wow believe wow. it or not I'm not stupid <laughs> I, just, I, <laughs> I just think needed, we know that <laughs> I just needed some help right so um, like and then yeah. all the possible like the world was my oyster you know and suddenly teachers were saying you know yeah. you don't have to leave school and I was like I, I never felt like I had to leave school I wanted to leave school I wanted I wanted to be yeah. a chef it wasn't something that I felt like okay I can't do this so I'm gonna do that no no I, I wanted to be a chef even if I had mm. I was top marking in the school and I could have been a neuroscientist I still want to be a chef so like it's, it wasn't a fall it wasn't a fallback um so yeah, you know it was it was it was hard but uh, the hardest thing was knowing that um I could suddenly get help and then as soon as I left school um not being considered a student anymore they pulled all my medication and treatment and I was left as a sheep amongst the wolves so it was pretty hard and just speaking of uh wanting to be a chef I mean your family was was full of electricians bricklayers mechanics where did where did chefing come from for you? Where did that food obsession start? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's no like chefs in my family. There's there's a few generations of bakers, and but there's no like you know no one eat, like there wasn't like one of my uncles was a great chef. Or um, I, I think it comes from a love of wanting to connect, and and I, I think people are drawn to things that make them happy, right? Um, people are yeah. people want to be around family environments. People want to be around those memories that make them happy. And I remember growing up with my grandparents and growing up around food and 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 seeing how happy they were and that that sense of giving and selflessness which came through food. And I just I don't know, like being a chef in Europe and in the Middle East, it's a it's a it, it's it's a respectful job, right? It's not like how it used to be here in Australia. It wasn't just something you did because you couldn't do anything else. Um, I, yeah. Anything with high, anything with hierarchy for me is something I'm drawn to because it's a clear passage, right? I know exactly. I start here, I gain respect, I do my job, I get to the next step, and I keep stepping up. I mean, I, I found it really hard to work in an environment like an office or whatever, and thinking, okay, well, how do I actually get to the top? Because there isn't really a straight hierarchy here. It's not just based on how good I am. Or I don't know how to navigate it. So in, in the kitchen, I knew what I had to do: just work bloody hard and climb the tree. Fair enough. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives and Tobin Brothers now offer fully live-streamed services so that anyone who cannot attend the funeral of a loved one can still view the service and participate. More with Shane D'Elia in just a moment. Welcome 
Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner and our guest tonight is chef and entrepreneur Shane Delia, the man behind Melbourne's Middle Eastern Mecca Maha and Biggie Smalls, home of one of the best kebabs you're ever likely to eat. You'll also find him on your television, one of the hosts of Postcards on Channel 9 and on a Middle Eastern Feast. Now, Shane, before the break, we were talking about your early years um, and how you got into chefing. But um, there's some pretty good anecdotes about those early days uh, in terms of your apprenticeship when when you started at 17. Uh, And that was a pretty, pretty... um, I guess tiring time for you wasn't wasn't it? You were you were getting the train, the V line, um, in Geelong, to Geelong. Pretty long drives and late nights for you. Um, were they were they fun memories or hard working memories of those early days, chefing? No, that, those early memories are the most important ones. I think that's the foundation of of my career, and um, I really I wanted it to be hard. You know, I, I if I get into a fight and it's easy, I mean, you lose motivation. Like it needed to be hard for me to really sort of give it my all. Um, yeah, I mean, I was young, right? So like I, used to, I was living with my mum and dad in the outer west. We were living in Sydney at the time and the only train was a V-line. So you'd, you'd catch the V-line to Spencer Street and then sort of catch another one to, to, to Flinders Street and then a tram all the way up to Eden on the Park in uh, the other park where I was working. And um, But the last train home was like, I think, 11 o'clock or 10.30. And, you know, most nights I wouldn't finish before 12 or 1. So uh, my dad would drive into the city every night um, and wait at the back wow. of the hotel. You know, he'd, he'd sneakily stick up the L plates on the window on the windows and fall asleep in the passenger seat. <laughs> and then I'd jump in the car and drive home and then wake him up. Hey, Dad, we're home. But, um, like, I mean, he would have to That's get up awesome. that next morning. At, but, he, but he'd have to get up that next morning at, like, 4.30, 5 o'clock and start work himself. So if you think about the sacrifice wow. and, and the love that he yeah. had to, to, you know, do that for me um, – you know, I'll never forget that. But then, you know, like you said, going out to Geelong was, you know, big Sunday at my grandparents' house, having Sunday dinner. And then, you know, you have to make the trek out to Geelong for trade school, which you do, you know, two-week blocks. Mm. And no, they were really exciting times. I was a boy in a man's world. I mean, I was 17. Everyone else is, you know, you're walking into a professional world. And it's always pretty daunting for a, an apprentice coming straight from high school because um, you don't know what mm. to expect. It's like, you know, you're a primary school kid starting bloody university. Um, so it's everyone's bigger. Everyone <laughs> yeah. knows what they're doing. You, you run out of steam pretty quick too, because you, you, we, we used to actually work a full apprenticeship in those days. So you'd actually get to work at you know like nine o'clock, and you wouldn't get home till midnight. So it was like they were big wow. days, and you run out. You run out of steam. Like I remember going home and wanting to give up, and you know like saying to mum, I can't, I can't do this. And you know her standing beside me said, No, no, you've started this. You said you're going to do it. You just need to keep doing it. And you know, I would have given up a bunch of times if I didn't have mum and dad right beside me saying, no, no, keep keep going, you, you can do this, you just need to get through this next barrier. Oh, good on you, mum and dad. I'm always interested to hear too about, because um, we've, we've had a couple of chefs on the show and I, I always find it funny to hear about those really early days in the first kitchens you worked in as to what mistakes you made and how you covered up for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's been a few. <laughs> but what, used, what, used to, what used to happen? I mean, there was things that used to happen in the old days, which I, I think were fun. But now everyone's a bit scared to have a bit of fun because it can be perceived as bullying. So, like, I mean, there was a day where a couple of the chefs stuck some gelatine sheets in a tray, and gelatin, is, you know, you know, melts with heat, right? But stuck them in this tray yeah. and put them through, like, made me stand on the end of the dishwasher, and I said, Shane, these are 
microwave filters. They're $1,000 each. You need to stand on the other side of the dishwasher, so make sure they don't fly off inside the dishwasher. When they come out, you need to get them and bring them to me. And I'm sitting there going, no problem, chef. I'll do that, chef. You stuck them in these little filters and you, what you thought were filters and just sheets of gelatin. And they go through this roaring hot dishwasher coming out the other side and they're just like not there, right? They've evaporated. And you have these, <laughs> these chefs in the back looking at you and you're going, oh, my God, oh, my God. Where's the where's the where's the filters? And you're like pulling this thing apart, and you're shitting yourself. And then suddenly, you have to man up to the chef and go, "Hey, oh, I don't know what I've done." And they're all bursting in tears, and you're like, "You pricks!" But, <laughs> but it's like it's, a, it's kind of like I mean, that's, that's, that it created a great workplace culture, and we all got along, yeah. and we tested each yeah. other's boundaries, and you had to yeah. have a laugh at yourself. Do you, what do you remember? What you got paid in the early days? Oh, it was like eight bucks something an hour. Um, it was yeah, about eight dollars yeah. something before tax. Um, it was peanuts. I think I was getting two hundred and. 60 bucks a week and when we were so 260 bucks a week i mean the train the train wasn't cheap because it was a v-line and then when we were going out to do block release at the gordon and out in geelong i mean i used to pay for accommodation there it was like 30 bucks a night so but like and it was a like it was a they used to rent rooms by the hour so you can imagine the type of joint it was um for a young 17 year old kid to be in a room where you could hear people knocking boots next door wasn't fun um, I didn't even have enough money <laughs> to, to, uh, to, to buy my breakfast. Like I used to have, have to work in the kitchen of the pub after school so they'd give me a feed in the morning, you know, like it was pretty tight. Wow. And uh, But I wanted yeah. to do that. I didn't want to ask for help. I didn't – like if I asked mum and dad for help, they would have helped. But I, I, I don't mm. want to ask for help. Like I, I, I'm my own man and yeah. I need to carve my own destiny. Good on you. Um, did you have chefs who you aspired to be like in those days, you know, some of the, the, the finer dining chefs? You, you know, I, and, and I've been asked this a lot and they're like, oh, who do you look up to and which are the, which are the chefs that you want – I don't want to come across arrogant, but I don't really look up to chefs. I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't know. I don't sit there and go, oh, wow. I've never been mean that guy with like sports stars. Oh my God, I've been blown away by that. You know, I can appreciate people and look at it, but no, I wasn't really idolizing anyone. I was trying to work out who I was as a person um, and, and, and as a chef and what I wanted to do. And I just loved cooking. Like I didn't really aim for the stars. I never wanted to open a restaurant. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just enjoyed being in the kitchen and I enjoyed being amongst a team. I enjoyed being, felt like I was valuable and I was really loving finally being in an environment where I could excel. You know, like I felt like in a kitchen, mm-hmm. there was no distractions. I didn't have time to get distracted. Um, I could fully focus and it was up to my raw ability and what I could contribute to the team. And I, and I really enjoyed that. Speaking of your raw ability, you started in pubs and pasta shops and hotels. How did you make that leap if you weren't really following in the footsteps of, of other uh, fine dining sort of chefs? How did you make that leap over to where you are? Well, I didn't want to start an apprenticeship in just somewhere average. I didn't want to leave school without having a good platform to move forward. So, yeah, my earlier days where I was spending school holidays and weekends and everything else in pubs and pasta shops and anywhere I could find a buck. Like I was, I remember I was pumping petrol on like my, what is it, 14 and nine months or something, you can start working. I was there on the day, mm-hmm. like pumping fuel, filling yeah. the pie warmer. Like I, I was that guy, right? Like cleaning the toilet. I was just wrapped to know I was earning money because I wanted to buy my first car and do all those kind of things. And um, I was at, you know, I was at Vic Roads on my 18th birthday, like there, that morning yeah, getting my wow. license. So, yeah. um, you know, like how did, I mean, how did I make the jump? I mean, I, I wrote a handwritten letter to every single five-star hotel in Melbourne because I thought I'm going to go for the best and I wanted to work in a hotel because I knew there was great structure and back in the 90s, that was the place to be, you know, in a hotel, the best restaurants are in five stars. Um, and I got knocked yep. back from every single one. Um, 
too young, yep. no experience, or how you supposed to bloody get experience, but you know, too young and all this kind of yeah. stuff. But it was actually just nice to get back a, a letter on a on a gold embossed letterhead. I felt pretty special. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah. I eventually found a, an apprenticeship in a in a four star hotel where I'd done some work experience, and my mum knew the head chef there, and um, it was my first crack. And I've always just said, just you don't need to push me through the door; just crack it open, and I'll do the rest. So. Um, I yeah. got a crack and I went for it. And your wife, who you married in 2007, Maha, did she, um, was she a bit freaked out when you decided to call the new restaurant you're opening with George Columbaris after her? Uh, <laughs> was she on it? Well, the fence that you speak to, it was actually her idea. I thought it was uh, just right. a bit of a tax. I thought it would just be a bit of a tax dodge if the ATO come and looked for me. I could say it's hers. But <laughs> no, no, all jokes aside, I mean, we were, I was thinking about what are we going to call this restaurant and, and Maha said to me, you can always call it Maha. That's a great name. I said to her, you wish. And then as, when I started thinking about it, I thought, you know what? It probably it is. is. And, and if, it to is be, if, yeah. if anything, she, she gave me a lot of inspiration to follow my heart with what I wanted to cook. Because before Maha and I got together, I was cooking French food my whole life. Um, and I kind of felt a bit disconnected. And um, it wasn't until we mm. traveled a bit through the Middle East and started to really get into my heritage and her heritage and realize the similarities in our ancestry that I started to follow a Middle Eastern route and said, you know, if I'm going to cook food, this is the food I want to cook. And um, so it mm. kind of um, – and it makes me look good in front of people too to name the restaurant after my wife. <laughs> Very good. Um, now, you've got two kids, Jada and Jude. Do they love food as much as you or has it been every parent's struggle in your house to actually get them to eat healthy food? Um, like I'm an average guy. My kids are average kids. <laughs> my son's a chicken nugget master and, you know, my, my daughter's just turned 12. So she's, um, she's learning what she's, you know, about herself and going to, going to high school and she's going through changes and challenging me, challenging me every second. So she, I've got beautiful kids, but they're just normal, beautiful, uh, fun loving kids. They haven't got a passion for anything at the moment, apart from Fortnite and TikTok, I think. So um it's just uh you know like it's um it i'm just enjoying watching them grow up and you know my little boy loves nothing like i this morning it was so nice to wake up i didn't have to get up at the crack of dawn and run around and my little boy crawled into my bed and i said what are you doing he goes dad i just want to snuggle i'm like oh man like I, oh. I wish I could stay in bed all day and do that, but no, they, they're not foodies yeah. yet. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that because I think, yeah, every parent, including me, has many a struggle with food and children. But I want to know, this is something I ask, um, you know, all the chefs that we have on, and in saying that, we haven't had millions, but we've had a few. Is there a night and is it uh, often that you might just have baked beans on toast? No, I'm not a baked beans on toast guy. Like there's a, no. I, I'm, a, I'm a lot of other stuff. I don't do the whole... Oh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a dirty pizza from Pizza Hut. Um, I'm, uh, I can eat a, okay. Mac, yep. I can eat a, I can eat a double quarter pounder with cheese, no problem. You know, HSP, bring yep. it all day. But I don't know about. Yep. I'm not the baked beans on toast, toast guy. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But it's good to hear that you still, um, you'll still indulge when necessary. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> this I'm is great Australian indulge. lives for Tobit. Oh, good. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives and plenty more with Shane D'Elia in just a moment. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. I'm Laura Turner and our guest tonight is Shane D'Elia. 
He's a lot of things, but just don't call him a celebrity chef. <laughs> now, Shane is with me at the moment, of course. I want to know, um, we touched on this a little bit earlier, Shane, but of course, 2020 was such a devastating year for so many industries, but restaurants and food um, really copped it and still are. Um, how hard was it for you to pivot, to find, um, you know, a new normal and, and keep the wheels moving for your business? It was, it, it sounds like it was one of those stories. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was, a, it was, it was a hard time because everything that I'd ever worked for and hoped for suddenly was going to be ripped apart from me and destroyed. And I was felt helpless and not knowing what was going to happen. And I didn't know I questioned to myself whether I had enough fight in, in me to get back in the ring and do it again. I felt, felt like I've been fighting mm. my way through life ever since I've been pushed out into this world. And I was just thinking, can I muster enough strength to do this again? But I made some early decisions about uh, my business. We closed quite early before there was any you know government sort of announcements about closures or lockdowns or, or JobKeeper, which gave me some time to think and plan. Um, and in that time, in that clarity, I realized that I had an opportunity um, to connect with our customers through a home delivery model, um, which then turned out mm. to be one of the most exciting businesses that I've ever been involved with um, called Providor. Providor. Uh, mm, yeah, and, and now is, is a significant part of not just my life, but the Australian culinary scene. I mean, we've single-handedly, and you could, you could quote this by speaking to any of our restaurant partners, I think saved the high-end restaurant scene in Melbourne. I mean, a lot of the restaurants that you know and love would not be here today without the support that Providor offered them during our two lockdowns. Um, and I'm really proud of that mm. because I love these restaurants and they're, they're, they're an integral part of what makes Melbourne beautiful. Um, but now I think that we've got an opportunity to change the world, right? Like, I mean, I dream big. And I think that what Providor does is it connects restaurants to people in a really significant way um, in their homes, creating great memories. I mean, my great memories as a child were having, like, watching my parents have dinner parties and people over and all that kind of stuff. But life was different and, and, and it would be a little bit simpler. And people had time to cook. They had time to shop. They actually cooked on a regular occasion, so they knew how to cook. People just don't do that anymore. They're busy. You know, both parents mm -hmm. are busy. They're working. They've got kids here, kids there. Family structures are different. You know, so what Providor does is enables people to create beautiful, beautiful memories in their home and let chefs do all the hard work for them. So um, out of something mm. really hard comes something really beautiful. Um, but I'll always love restaurants and, and restaurants are what my, where my soul is. And, um, you know, I still think about the pain and I see it on my, my staff's face and, and see some of the people that, ha that, were, that were victims um, and casualties of COVID. And, you know, they're now in foreign parts of the world struggling um, where they could be here with us trying to rebuild this beautiful country. Yeah, it's there's some so many sad stories out of COVID, but as you say, with Providor, a really uh, strong silver lining. And, and I can imagine, um, you know, even without lockdown, that, that, that business is so strong now that you can continue to evolve it and, um, you know, and make opportunities out of all sorts of things that, that are non-COVID related, just having that connection in people's homes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually given us a great way to speak to new people. And Providor is not a COVID business. Um, it's it's, a, it's mm. a real business. And we've actually changed the dining landscape now. So, I mean, people are thinking of new ways to connect, new businesses, new opportunities. The world changes, right? I mean, people say, oh, the world's changed so much. Hang on, the world changes every day. And it's always changed every day. It's just that it's changed 
dramatically for everyone all at once, yeah. which is mm. kind of a beautiful thing because we actually got the same perspective for once in our life. You know, we're actually moving at the same speed for the first time ever. So it's it's actually if, if, if we look at the positives, I'm not a I'm not a stick your head in the sand guy. Um, I don't I don't get ready. I stay ready. So like it's it, I think it's time for people to actually lift their head up a bit, get positive. I know you know all these lockdowns and bits and pieces is really hard for people to motivate themselves, but there is so much beauty to be seen. We just need to be brave enough to go and get it. And that is a wonderful way to end the show. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, Shane D'Elia. Thank you. I appreciate being on. Thanks for all the nice words. And you can catch up with Shane D'Elia on Postcards, Victoria's favourite travel show, of course, on Sundays at 5.30pm on Channel 9 and, of course, on 9 now. And watch Middle East Feast Thursdays at 8pm on SPS. SBS Food. If you've enjoyed our chat with Shane D'Elia tonight, you can share it with a friend and subscribe to the Great Australian Lives podcast. And of course, join me the same time next week when we celebrate another Great Australian Life. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with With Laura Turner Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives.